if you could, imagine with me this scene. Jesus Christ has just been captured by the Roman centurions, and they are taking this time to mock him and to abuse him. So they strip him of his clothes, and they put on these purple, this purple robe, and then they take the time to fashion this crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and then they begin to mock him. Look, here's the king of the Jews. And if you think about it, these are Roman centurion soldiers. So they're strong, athletic men, and they're punching him, and they're beating him and kicking him. And they put a crown on his head, the purple robe on him. They give him a scepter and to say, look, here's a king. And then they take the scepter from him and hit him on the head, driving those thorns deeper into his skull. And then after they're done, after they've tired themselves out, essentially, from beating him, they take him to Pilate and say, <laughs> here he is. And Pilate leads them to the porch, the, the portico of the governor. And overlooking the whole city of Jerusalem, he points to Jesus and he says, behold, the man. And we could spend a lot of time on what Pilate said there. He says, behold, the man. And we could, we could break that up into its three parts and analyze all three of the words. Behold, the man. And we could spend a lot of, I mean, what really was Pilate saying when he said, behold, the man. Do you, do you see him? Do you see this man? Do you see what we've done to him? Is this the one you want? And the crowd just cried, crucify him, crucify him. Now, in the Greek, the word behold and the word the man is idua o anthropos, which basically means behold the man. But the word idua is this powerful word of prompting. It's to prompt our attention. It's to fix our eyes, to pay attention. I guess the word behold does that too. We don't ever use that word. But if I did use the word and I said it like this, behold, it means look, feast your eyes. Stop a minute and think about this. Examine the situation. Behold the man. Well, later on, the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin, and that's called the Vulgate. And in Latin, the word is exi homo, means behold the man. Exi homo. And what I think is interesting, the reason why I brought up the Latin is because that phrase, exit homo, becomes this extremely popular phrase. It, it, it emotes all this feeling and, and it has, it's a very powerful, powerful little phrase, exit homo. For instance, the painting behind me is, it was painted by an Italian painter in the 1800s, 1871, and he just simply titled it exit homo. But then... All kinds of literists and painters and musicians and poets did their greatest, their finest work, and they named it something like Exi Homo or Behold the Man. For instance, maybe you've heard of a guy named Frederick Nietzsche. Anyone ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? He's pretty famous. He uh, is the father of existentialism, or, or maybe not the father, but he's a big leader of existential philosophy or humanism. He wrote his autobiography, and if you don't know what an autobiography is, an autobiography is about yourself, right? You write a biography about yourself. So he wrote an autobiography, and he entitled it, as you can see on the screen here, Exi Homo. 
behold the man which is me. It's a very blasphemous little autobiography as well. He's not in any way comparing himself to Christ. In fact, he's purposefully throughout this book contrasting himself with Christ. And he even says, I'm better than Christ as a man because I'm a humanist. Christ was not. In fact, in one of his chapters, the chapter is entitled, Why I Am a Destiny, which alone is blasphemous, right? Why I, capital, am, capital, a destiny. In that chapter, he says, every time I meet a religious man, I immediately feel the need to wash my hands. So he hated Christians, he hated Christ, and he wrote his autobiography entitled Exe Homo. Now, as an existentialist, he also um, influenced another later existentialist by the name of Michael Moorcock. And Moorcock is a... um, Um, a scientific sci-fi novelist. He won the Nebula Award in 1967 for this book that he calls Behold the Man. And you can see by the cover, it's obviously about Christ, but it's not good. If you and I probably wouldn't think it was good. It's a novel about a guy who travels back in time to meet Jesus, and when he gets there, he finds that Jesus is just a retarded boy. Obviously, this was written in 1967. They weren't politically correct. And he couldn't say anything but Jesus, 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 Jesus. This little boy was born to a woman named Mary who was a prostitute. So it's very heretical. And so the character who travels back in time to meet Jesus finds out that he's retarded, decides he'll be Jesus. And he plays out the, the role that he remembers the best he can. And he makes up stupid stories. And he ends up dying on the cross. And on the cross, instead of saying, Eli, Eli, lava sabavanakadi, which means, why have you forsaken me? He says, lie, lie, it's all a lie. This is just a novel. It's not real. <laughs> but obviously... Behold the man, which won the Nebula Award in 1967, isn't really a positive outlook on who Christ is. So this phrase, behold the man, exi homo, is a powerful phrase. It, it, it produces emotion, I think. And so I think it's interesting that as we enter into this new season leading up to Easter, as we enter into this new series, As we study Isaiah 53, it will be our role, our job, to behold the man. Some people have beheld the man who is Jesus, and they, like Nietzsche and like Moorcock and like the people in Jerusalem, they want to crucify him. While other people beheld the man, and as they watch him die, they say, surely, This is the son of God. Maybe that centurion who said that was one of the same centurions that was beating his face just hours before. And now he's saying, now that I've beholden this man, surely he is the son of God. This next seven weeks, as we enter into this new series, I'm asking us as a church to behold the man. Will you behold the man? Will you behold the man? Stop, think, look. Listen, feel, understand, feast your eyes on the man who is Jesus. And so this next series is entitled The Gospel According to Isaiah because it comes from the book Isaiah and it comes from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Very, very famous text. So before we enter into tonight's discussion, I wanna just give a brief 
um, description of the hermeneutics and the outline of, of this um, chapter. And I've, I've printed a little book, lit or folder or whatever you call it, piece of paper that has for you the outline of the entire um, chapter. Isaiah chapter 53 is the fourth servant song of Isaiah. And what that means is there's four servant songs in Isaiah. This is the fourth one. The other three sound very similar to it. It's all about God saying, look, my servant's coming. And when he does, he's changing everything. And the fourth one is the one that we all remember as Isaiah 53, that by his wounds, we are healed. You know, he is bruised for our iniquities. We all know probably Isaiah 53. It is the most famous passage in scripture according to scripture. What I mean by that is it gets the most quotes. If you take the New Testament, um, the gospels and the epistles, and you stack up all the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, Isaiah 53 takes it by storm, takes it by a thousand. It's the most, everyone quotes Isaiah 53. John Calvin said, Isaiah 53 is the gospel according to Isaiah. Another scholar said, Isaiah 53 is the first gospel message. It's the clearest, firstest gospel message in the Bible. And volumes, I'm talking volumes, have been written just about these 15 verses. We could spend the rest of our lives just studying these 15 verses. I truly believe that. In fact, I have a book at home written by an old Scottish Presbyterian preacher named James Durham. It's entitled Christ Crucified or the Morrow of the Gospel, and it's 72 messages on Isaiah 53. <laughs> now, James Durham only lived to be 36 years old, so he died at a younger age than I am now. And in that lifetime, he was able to produce 72 great messages on Isaiah 53. It's a very rich text. I think we're going to learn a lot and grow a lot as we go through it. So let's look at the structure a little bit. Isaiah 53 is what's called a chiasm. It starts actually at chapter 52, verse 13. And it's a chiasm, which means it's structured in the shape of a chi. And the chi is the Greek letter that we would call an X, right? It looks like an X. So the chiasm goes from the left to the right. It follows the, the left side of this X. It's five stanzas. So it's a, a song with five verses, essentially. And each stanza has three verses in it. So, th so, so three, six, nine, 12, 15. There's 15 verses total. And the way a chiasm works is that it's a mirror image at the center of it. So it's A, B, C is the center, and then B prime, which is going to be a mirrored image of B, and then A prime, which is going to be a mirror image of A. This is important, I think, as we study this, that you um, see this. So first A, success. God's going to tell us before we ever start to hear about the sufferings of Messiah that he's going to succeed in whatever it is that he's attempting to do by suffering on the cross. He's going to succeed in sprinkling many nations. He's going to succeed in atoning for our sins. And then section two or B is suffering. And you can read in that section there that he's suffering. He's suffering greatly. And then we get to section C and that's the significance. And I'm going to come back to that because it's kind of significant. 
And then section B prime is going to take the suffering that, that's mirroring. It's going to say the same thing, but it's going to kick it up a notch. This is the way a chiasm always works. The second half of it always kicks it up a notch. So now we're going to see that he's going to suffer tremendously, and he's an innocent man, so that's even worse. And then we're going to see that he's going to succeed tremendously, that God was pleased to crush him and going to raise him up above every name. He's going to be raised above every name on earth. And so you can't succeed more than that. (laughs) He's going to succeed ultimately. And so the middle of a chiasm, there's lots of chiasms in the Bible. I told you that a chiasm is named after the chi, right? Which looks like an X. Just as a side note, um, I've gotten in trouble a couple of times in my life during Christmas when I put an X for Christ and put Xmas. And people get upset about that. And then I'll say, but do you know that the X is the chi? It's the symbol for Christ. <laughs> and so it's Christmas. So even if those people think they're taking Christ out of Christmas by putting an X in front of it, it really is the same thing. It is still Christ. And so it's, there's irony there. But when I do it, I'm not doing it to be ironic. I'm doing it to be short because I don't know how to spell very well and I have a very bad handwriting. And so Xmas is really good for me. So if I ever put Xmas in an email, don't, get, don't be hating, right? It's X stands for chi, which is the symbol for Christ, <laughs> You got it? Cool. So in the middle is the, is, the, is the significance. It's the pivot. It's the center of the whole passage. And it's the most significant. And if you read this passage, it says this is why this servant is suffering. Why is he suffering? To atone for our sin. It's, I can't wait till we get to that message. It's my favorite. It's all about atonement. So even though there's five distinct you know, A, B, C, B prime, A prime, sections. It's one song, right? So it's, there's one unified theme, and that theme is all about the servant who suffers to atone for, and here's the most important part, your sin. In just 15 verses, 10 times God says, for you. 10 times God says, this blood was shed for you. These bruises were endured for you. This suffering is done for your iniquities. This is going to be a fabulous study, I think, as we look through Isaiah 53. So tonight, what I want to do is just focus on the first two words, behold my servant, or three words, I guess it's three, behold my servant. And if we were to look at the whole section, and we will, but, as if, but, but if we were to just glance over it right now, we'll see that Isaiah tells us several ways that we can behold the servant. He says things like, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So one way that we could behold the servant is to look at him. Some people can't even look at him. I don't know if you noticed in the Italian painter's painting that I had up there, Jesus was marred and bruised, and everyone in the background was looking down. They couldn't look at him. So we should look. Tonight we need to think about what does it mean to look while we behold Jesus. Secondly, throughout this chapter, Isaiah says, who will believe and who has heard the message? So we need to hear the message. We need to listen. And then also Isaiah says that we do not esteem him. No one would esteem him. And that an entire generation would not even consider this man. Entire generation would not even consider that he was cut off from the land of the living. He's not a thought. He's not even an afterthought. No consideration at all. We're moving right about their life. So in order to behold the servant, we must look. 
We must listen and we must consider with our hearts. And so tonight, I want to go through those three things. Interestingly, the Bible says more than once, this very verse, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of a man imagined or considered what God has prepared for those who love him. So tonight, we're going to go on a journey to behold the Christ by looking and listening and considering with our hearts. Would you like to go on that journey with me? Well, let's pray before we dive into that. Father in heaven, um, as we look at this phenomenal piece of scripture that you gave in the Old Testament that so clearly and perfectly portrays Christ on a tree dying for me, dying for all of us, I pray, Lord, that as we dive into this text, as we study the words, as we study the concepts, as we see what's happening, that more than anything, we will be able to behold the man who is Jesus Christ, that he would begin to change who we are as men and women as we behold him. And I ask that you'll begin that work in our lives even today. In Jesus' name, amen. So real quickly, I don't know if you grew up in a traditional church that practiced Lent or if you grew up in a church that practiced, you know, Good Friday. I don't know. I mean, these are, these are strange concepts for some of us. If we grew up not in a church at all or if we grew up in an evangelical church that might have been against those kinds of things. Um, I, I'm a denominational mutt, so I've grown up in everything. I've, I've gone way high church, you know, and we did Lent. I've gone way the opposite of high church, which I don't want to say low, but it's the opposite of high church, you know, spoken tongues and crazy things like that. I never got to do that, tried, but it didn't work. But I've, I've been everywhere on the denominational spectrum. And so I really do believe, however, that we have a calendar for a reason. We have stars, we have moons, we have sun, and we have a calendar for a reason, and that calendar brings in seasons of our lives. Some seasons are cold, some seasons are hot. And in your spiritual life, do you not have seasons? Yes, and sometimes you're cold, sometimes you're hot. And I believe that God, for a reason, creates these seasons, and one of those seasons is the season of of Easter, The church has always celebrated Easter. We may not have known exactly when Jesus was born, but we know when he died. He died on Passover. And so immediately the church started celebrating Passover, but they called it something different. They called it Pascha, which was the fulfillment of Passover because Jesus was the Paschal lamb. And so immediately the Christians started celebrating on Sunday morning the resurrected Christ as a calendaric event right? As a rhythm of their life. We were always celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning, but on Pascha, we're really celebrating it. And they would prepare their hearts for at least a week. We have written in the old, old, old literature from the early church fathers, they would prepare their hearts by fasting for at least a week before Easter. So I don't know what that means for you, I'm not suggesting that you give up salt for Lent. I'm not suggesting that you do something, you know, like, you know, give up chocolate or whatever. But I do think that for the next seven weeks, for the next 40 days, we should prepare our hearts. We should get hot. You know what I'm saying? If, if, if we have seasons that are cold and hot, this should be a season where we're hot and we're, we're, we're beholding the man. And so what I'd like for you to do tonight as we discuss these things, to be thinking how and what means and what ways and what 
rhythms that you can put in your own life that will focus your attention on beholding the man that is Christ. You might say, well, shouldn't we always? (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) but I can tell you the truth. I'm not always. But during this season, it's a good reason to. We've got a reason now. So let's, let's behold the man. The first thing we need to do is look. Isaiah says he has no former majesty that we would even look at him. And I'm asking you, would you look at him? Look at this one who is hanging on the cross, who is shedding his blood, who is giving his life willingly for you. Jesus said about this, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus says, the greatest love that you can have is to give, to lay down your life for your sin. And if you look at him, he's laying down his life for his friends. I don't know about you, but I want a friend like that. I want Jesus to be my friend I want to be a friend of Jesus. Greater love has no one but the one who would lay his life for his friend. And Jesus calls you friend and gives his life for you. Jesus also says this, or Paul says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while you were still sinning, while you were yet in your sin, Christ died for you. So not only does he lay down his life for his friends, but he lays down his life for his enemies. For you who are wicked and sinful and hostile towards the cross, he would gladly give his life to you as well. Jesus said this, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And he's talking to his disciples, here I am, behold the man. Many have longed to see it and you are seeing it. Don't you wanna see Jesus? I want I want to see Jesus. How can we, I mean, really, can we? How can we see Jesus? The Pharisees said to Jesus, hey, we want to see a sign. Jesus says, you want a sign? I got your sign. (laughs) Here's here's your sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Three days in the heart of the earth and then resurrected. That's your sign. I want to see Jesus. The Pharisees wanted to see a sign. I want to see Jesus. Anyone want to see Jesus? Have you ever seen Jesus? In order to behold the man, we have to see Jesus. So I want to discuss this question. How can you see Jesus? Maybe you've grown up in the church your whole life and you're thinking, well, you know, I mean, you know, well, you know. Or maybe you've never grown up in the church and you're like, that's a good question, right? I want to see him. I want to behold the man. And so the question I want to ask right now is, let's just say we're going to kick it up a notch. We're going to put some intensity and focus in our lives for the next seven weeks, and we're going to behold the man. What can you do this week, these next seven weeks, I should say, that will sharpen your focus to see Jesus? That's, that's the question. What can we do to see Jesus more clearly over the next seven weeks? Let's take three minutes and discuss that question as a group. Well, tell me if it's not the most convicting text in all of the Bible, where Jesus is talking to some people, and he says, and in those days, you know, the sheep will go up to heaven, and the goats will go up to go to hell. And when they, and he'll say, well, and they'll say, well, why? And I'll say, because 
when I was sick, you didn't come visit me. And when I was hungry, you didn't give me food. And when I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. And when I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. And the goats will say, but Lord, when were you in prison and we didn't visit you? When were you thirsty and we didn't give you something to drink? When, when, when? And he says, if you've done it not to the least of these, you've done it not to me. And then... That's all he had to say, right? But he takes another five minutes to say this, and then he will say to those on his left, you get to enter because when I was in prison, you visited me, and when I was thirsty, you gave me drink, and when I was hungry, you gave me food. And the people on the left said, but Lord, when were you in prison and we visited you, and when were you? See, he, he, he gets a little redundant, right, and says this long parable, and it's without complexity. It's clear as a bell. I am the least of these. You want to see me? There I am. Go to prison. There I am. Go to the hospital. There I am. And tell me that's not the most convicting passage in all of the Bible because, well, I don't go to prison and I don't go to the hospital. You know what I'm saying? If I, I think it's an excellent answer, my love. If, if, if that is how we see Jesus, let's go see him. But yet, maybe we don't really want to see him. Well, the next thing that Isaiah tells us, I think, in this text is that we need to behold him by hearing him, by listening to him. It's throughout this chapter, but especially, I think, he says, who will believe and who has heard the message in 53 verse 1? Who has believed and who has heard the message? So let's take a moment and listen to his message. Let's listen to Jesus say his message. Do you have an ear to hear his message. And I think it's interesting that this phrase, do you have an ear to hear, is mentioned a lot. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah a bunch. Even when he tells Isaiah to go and preach this message, but they will not have ears to hear. Jesus says, I speak in parables so that you won't have ears to hear. It's, it's common throughout the Bible. Do you have an ear to hear? And here's the, here's the ironic thing. The message itself is as simple as it could be. It's the simplest message in the universe. It's so simple that a child could believe it. That's what Jesus says. You, might, you have to believe it like a child. It's that simple. It's so simple that Jesus gives this message to prostitutes. He gives it to fishermen. He gives it to tax collectors. He gives it to orphans and widows and lepers. And yet he gives it to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they don't get it. A wise person once said, it is very, very easy to complicate the simple but it is extremely difficult to simplify the complex. I think that Jesus's message is already simple. It's just, and Jesus gives it simply. And yet we, the religious, the elite, we complexicate it. Uh, just for example, listen to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Behold the man, listen to Jesus, listen to how he says it. Jesus says it like this to simple people. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And this is easy for the people that Jesus is speaking to to understand. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story. They knew the story. When Moses led Israel out of Egypt, they were wandering in the wilderness and most of them got bitten by a snake and a lot of them were dying. And God says, here's what you do. You killed that snake you put it on a pole, you stick the pole up in the air with the snake on it, which incidentally is where we get the picture for the medical field. You look at that snake 
And anyone who looks at that snake will be miraculously healed of that snake bite. Jesus says, in the same way, you take me, you kill me, you put me on a pole, you lift me up. And anyone who looks at me and believes in my message, their snake bite will miraculously go away. The sting of death, the sting of sin will miraculously go away. Jesus says it very simply, lift me up on a pole, look at me, and you're saved. We can get that. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Raise your hand if you think it's simple, not complex. Truly, truly, I say, if you hear my words and you believe them, you'll never die. You'll live forever. Easy. We don't have to complexicate it. Jesus also says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. Again, think it's simple? Okay, it gets better. Watch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. If we take out the fluff, truly, truly, I say to you, just take that out. This is five words. Whoever believes has eternal life. Does it get any simpler? If you just listen to the message and hear it, and the message is this, whoever believes has eternal life, how could you not behold and listen and believe in that message? We could literally spend the rest of the afternoon going through the gospel of John as I've kind of done already, looking at all the ways that Jesus communicates the message, and we'll see it's really quite simple. The question is, is do you have an ear to hear, or do you want to complicate it? Well, what does belief really mean? What does hearing really mean? What is eternal life really? No, 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 shh. Listen, anyone who believes will have eternal life. Do you have an ear? to hear that message. Everyone, this is in Acts, this is in Romans, this is in several places in the Bible, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you have to understand Calvinism? Do you have to understand dispensationalism? Do you have to believe, you know what I mean, that you're once saved, always saved? Do you have to have all these theological tenets in line and you have to sign a doctrinal statement? I mean, that might be something that you think. But I'm saying, Jesus says, who has heard our message and believed it? And here's the message. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It's so simple. Even a child can believe. So here's another discussion question. How can we hear Jesus more clearly over these next seven weeks? I know what you're thinking. Well, that's going to be the same answer. Well, I didn't like your first answer, okay? I want more. I mean, if we're really going to step back and put some intensity of focus to behold the man, wouldn't you agree that seeing him and hearing him might take different kinds of efforts, might take different kinds of, maybe we haven't actually really wrestled with this enough. Raise your hand if you think we could wrestle with it a little bit more. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. Because if, if no one raised their hands, I don't know what we would do, I guess. Uh, okay, Dan, come on back up. Let's sing some songs. What can you do over these next seven weeks to hear the voice of Jesus, to understand his message, the simplicity of his call on your life more fully over these next seven weeks? 
So it's the same question. No, wait, it's not the same question. It's a different question. You may think it's the same answer, but I think if you struggle and wrestle with the question, you might come up with something deeper and richer. So let's talk about this for three minutes. So I think that, I mean, would you agree that we should have seasons in our life where we're more in tune to hearing and more in tune to listening and that we would have to do things to make that happen? Maybe fasting, um, maybe fasting from noise. Maybe um, it's taking some time to say, I'm going to, tr-. you know, what the reason why we fast is because every time you're hungry, you think, oh, I want some food. And you say, oh, no, no, that's supposed to remind me to, to speak to him, to commune with him, that, that man does not live on bread alone, but by his word. And so I want to feed on him and not on you know, my own hunger. And so that can focus us and tune us up with him. Or a lot of times people, I've never done this. I, I think I think I tried it once is take a day of silence, you know, where I'm just not going to listen to anything. It's hard to do in my house with the toddlers, but, but it's, you know, take a day of silence and go crazy because I need some noise, you know, and those things I think do line us up more in tune. I mean, look at this guy, 36 years old. He wrote 72 sermons on um, Isaiah 53. Maybe he didn't need an iPhone, you know, he, he, he able, was able to do that in 1617 and we can't accomplish that in 2000 and 13 with all of our technology because we're so busy and we're so distracted. So the last thing we need to do is consider. And um, Isaiah says several times in this letter, um, you know, we did not esteem him. We esteemed him not. He also says that an entire generation would not even consider this man. And when we get to this section, uh, we'll learn that what he really means is we don't even think about him. We don't even consider him. He's not even an afterthought. He's not even thought at all. We just just pass right by and say, look, someone just died on the cross again. We don't even consider him. And so my question tonight is, will you consider this man? Will you consider what he's done for us? The, um, the book of Isaiah opens with God saying, hey, I want you to consider this. He, he actually says, come now, let us reason together. Let's sit on this bench together and let's hash this out. Let's, let's put our cards on the table and let's see what you got. Let's see what I got. Let's deal with this. Let's reason together. And then he says, look, this is what I want to reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, which is just about as red as you can get before it turns black, deep, deep, scarlet, red. Though your sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, which is just about as white as you can get. I mean, how white is snow? When, when it does snow, when we have like a layer of snow on the ground, doesn't it blind you? I feel like I need two pairs of sunglasses on because I'm getting hit from above and from below, you know? It's just so bright and white. I don't even know if Israel knows what snow is. Why is this in the Bible? Um, <laughs> Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool, which is an illustration we probably don't understand, but it's so very, very white. So here's the thing I want you to consider. From the very beginning, it's always been God's plan that he will take your sin away and give you purity, that he would take your sin and give you whiteness. It's always been God's plan. So consider that for a second. From the very beginning, it was always God's plan. You sit down with me, I'll make a deal with you. You give me your sin, I'll give you purity. What do you think? Want that deal? Consider that. God's plan has always been to remove sin. As I live, declares the Lord, um, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn away from your other gods, turn to me and your evil ways, for why should you die when I've already provided a way for you to live? God's plan has always been to save us. 
speaking about Isaiah 53, the author of Hebrews says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. In that climax of this chapter, we're gonna see that Jesus died to atone for our sin. And in the olden days, God provided a way to temporarily atone from sin through the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. But the author of Hebrews says, but Jesus entered in himself and said, I will be the lamb. Take my blood to to, to totally pay for our sin. So would you consider all that we have in this man who has gladly given his life for his friends, giving his life for his enemies. He wants you to hear his simple message. Just believe I'm doing all the work. Just believe. And it's always been my will to take care of your sin. So just as Pilate pointed to Jesus and said, exe homo, behold the man. And then Isaiah says, behold my servant. It is my hope that as a church, Over the next seven weeks, we will do just that. Behold the man, behold the servant. And if, I don't know what you're gonna do. I already know what I'm going to do. And I'm not suggesting go practice Lent. What I'm saying is do something in your life that will intensify your focus in beholding the man. It might be fasting. It might be giving something up. It might be taking things on, going to prison, going to the hospital, giving money to the poor, whatever it means that you would say, Lord, let me just ask you this. Show me your hand if you don't believe Wait, this is the other way. Show me your hand if you do believe. This is more encouraging to me. Show me your hand if you do believe that we all need to sharpen and intensify our focus on Jesus and seven weeks is not that big of a deal. Okay, good, good. Some of you don't, but that's cool. I mean, God will get a hold of your heart one of these days. I think that we should take these seven weeks and sharpen our focus. I wanna behold. I wanna know Jesus. I wanna see Jesus. I wanna hear Jesus. So we're going to try to do that together. And I would pray and ask that these seven weeks, and if you look at the back of this, we have seven weeks. The last week will be Easter, and we're going to celebrate Easter. We'll do it on Sunday morning, too. We're going to celebrate Easter on Sunday morning and have an Easter egg hunt on Saturday night like we did last year. But it's all going to lead to Easter, the resurrection. And so how many times has Easter just flown by and you buy some new clothes for your kids and you put a new ham in the oven and you get some new flowers for your mother as you go visit them for dinner and you maybe get some new candy for the baskets. And then next thing you know, boom, Easter is over. And I wonder, did you behold the man? Now, if you're like me, and I'm just gonna be honest with you, more times than not, that's been my Easter But those few times that I've taken the seven weeks or three weeks or one week, whatever, whenever I decided to think of it, you know, and I'm going to focus in and fast and pray and listen. Those have been the moments where I felt like I really beheld the man. And when Easter comes and he's greatly exalted, I can feel that celebration of this is why I'm so celebrating because he atoned for me. We're going to, at this point, worship and take communion. And maybe even this is a chance for you to look and to listen and to consider.